Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from the founder of a half a billion dollar jewelry empire on how to turn your product hobby into a multi-million dollar product business. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Victoria Wick to the show. She started from nothing and grew her jewelry business to over $500 million in sales. She has over 30 years of experience in retail sales and 20 years in selling on TV. She was a weekly host on the HSN network and QVC for many years, and now a monthly host on the Shop HQ TV show. She's also the host of the Million Dollar Hobbies podcast. Today, Victoria is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can turn their hobbies or inventions into multi-million dollar international businesses. Best practices with coming up with your innovations, getting them to market, scale them into becoming a brand, and then conquering that market. Now, on to the show. Hey, Victoria, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Excited that you're on. I understand that you're a couple of months away. I guess your daughter is about to have a child. You're struggling with what to name yourself. Exactly. I would, uh, <laughs> you know, I would ask everybody who's gone through this, you know, pro- the first grandchild. I- I'm excited about being a grandmother, but I don't want to be because that just sounds so old, you know? So I just kind of need some name to get e- sort of easy into that because by the time the second <laughs> kid comes in, you know, it's going to be grandmother for sure. And I'll be older. So. Anyway, yeah, I, I just went through that with, uh, you know, my parents and my in-laws and all that. And you know what? They bit the bullet. They're, they're grandpa and grandma on both sides now, but uh, they were definitely struggling with that for a bit as I was the first one, uh, my wife and I, on both sides of the family to have, uh, have a kiddo who's nine months now. Victoria, very excited to talk to you today. Um, why don't you just give everybody a bit of a background of your extensive 30 plus years in retail? Yeah. So I grew up in South Korea. Um, and came to America, you know, uh, my father had a dream that this was the promised land. So we got here You know, we struggled a lot, uh, but, and you know, it, this, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why that's important. He, we struggled a lot, but you know, we didn't have any money, but, um, as I grew older, got myself hyper-educated, you know, did all the right things supposedly to get job security. Uh, I did have job, job security, but I really was, was suffocating. I didn't really love what I was doing. And so um, I followed my dream uh, because that's why he brought me here <laughs> and took a leap of faith and started my own uh, jewelry company with absolutely no money. Literally, I had no money. And uh, and it is an industry that's notorious for requiring a lot of money to start. So uh, a lot of naysayers and you know people a lot of people told me you were just going to fail or when you fail, you know, come talk to me, I'll give you a job kind of thing. So, but I didn't give up my hope and I stuck with it and um, I grew it to, you know, a million dollars, 10 million. And eventually uh, my career total is well over $500 million. And um, when I look back in uh, like through the whole journey, I just feel like I didn't do anything really extraordinary. It's just hard work and just having that passion. When you have so much passion and you know everything about something, 
you get better at it than everybody else. And you, you have a pulse on what's going on. And um, so that's the whole story. And, I, and the only other thing I'll tell you is I did business in the course of that um, all over the world. You know, I w- I, my products were sold at uh, Harrods London, Galleries Lafayette in France, Takashimaya in Japan, all over the United States, you know, uh, Saks, Neiman, you know, you, you name it, everyone. And then ultimately, I ended up on HSN for 20 years with my show. And now I'm on Shop HQ monthly. And um, that's basically a two minute speech about me. <laughs> what an incredible story. And I'm really excited to unpack that because today's topic is how can folks that are just like you, either hobby inventors or maybe somebody with a small hobby project, maybe you're selling a few parts on Etsy or locally or whatever else, um, or maybe you're just sitting on kind of that idea and you're looking to scale it to a multi-million dollar venture. That's what we're talking about today. Right. So if right. we're talking about scaling from hobby to multi-million, the thing that excites me is like, first and foremost, Victoria, you did it. And not only did you did it, but you understand all these best practices to how you perform that in an efficient way. And that's very exciting for our, our audience because whether you are an inventor with that invention idea or whether you're a startup, you, the first things first is you need to understand that it, it happens. People do go from zero to hero. And Victoria is right here in front of us that, that went through that journey. So Victoria, why don't you break that down for us? What are the steps? What are the, the what is the psychology? What is the logic um, that are, are essentially the best practice elements, ideally in order of going from that either sketch on a napkin or that small kind of local uh, hobby product to becoming an international brand? Yeah. So Basically, when I first started my business, I wanted to spend more time with my family. You know, my kids uh, were very young. And uh, when I was, uh, you know, a kid, my parents immigrated to America. They each had two jobs. So I almost never saw them. So I was petrified that my kids would end up like me, you know, uh, very loving parents, but I couldn't spend time with them. So my whole goal at that time was uh, to try to make about 35 grand a year. I did have an MBA and uh, and a BS degree from UCLA at USC. So I thought that if uh, my business didn't succeed, I at least had you know something I, I could go get a job somewhere. So I wanted to make thirty five grand a year, but I wanted to kind of dictate my own time. And um, so I sketched out. So I had no money. So what I did was I sketched out a bunch of things that I thought there was, by the way, in the marketplace, there was a void in the market uh, back in. And I know, Kevin, you said your child is only what, nine months old or something. That's right. Yeah. So you, you probably don't even remember. Um, so this might be foreign to you, but I was the first generation of women that went to work, you know, working in so by semi-management positions, management positions like uh, senior vice president or, you know, whatever. that's what we aspire to be. So up to that point, uh, women did not work outside the home in a professional environment. So in the workplace, you know, back then, jewelry was um, sold, uh, nighttime jewelry, which is very fancy diamonds and, you know, show off stuff that you wore to social events. During the day, the daytime jewelry was either very funky plastic jewelry or ju- just junky looking stuff. Um, they just weren't, you know, it was kind of almost disposable. So women that going to work for the first time, uh, like a first generation going to work, they didn't really have a way to differentiate their wardrobe, uh, to, you know, that told them they were polished, intelligent, they were successful, um, understated, elegant style, but not outlandish. They didn't have jewelry like that at that time. So right. I saw a void there. And uh, so I sketched pieces. I didn't even have money to make samples. 
So I sketched pieces. I, you know, had a lookbook kind of, and I went to the local department stores um, and, and, you know, every department store I could find near in, in a 40 mile radius. And I would ask the department store managers, you know, like a jewelry counter manager. And I, I love going to like the assistant buyers because they had a little bit or less of an ego and they, they were more uh, giving of information. So I would say, you know, if I had, you know, if I developed a line like this, would there be a market for that? And I was shocked how much information, you know, I could sell this for X amount of dollars. I can't sell that. But, you know, if you made this in a smaller piece. So I got a lot of feedback that way. I would then fix it. Then I would uh, sketch them and I would really polish the sketch. I know I did a watercolor thing and, and my watercolors were very good. And um, I did a 3D, almost like a spec sheet kind of. Um, and I went to different places and I got, you know, once I got very consistent feedback, like I got like the eight styles that a lot of people just bid on, I then spent the money to get those samples made. Now, when I uh, spent the money to go get samples made, and, you know, I went, uh, a lot of the people that were willing to make those samples for you were overseas, and I was, you know, contacting them uh, at night, doing, you know, it was just a lot of hours doing that. But I'll tell you, the first mistake I ever made on that because mistakes are actually a part of your success journey. Um, people would ask me, uh, you know, if I make this sample for you, how many can you sell? And I would just say, well, I don't know. I mean, I was a young girl out of school. I had no idea, you know, so I said, I don't know. I mean, I could sell two, I could sell 200, I could sell 2000. I have no clue. So what happened was, and I, I said this to everybody who asked me, well, what happened was I never got those samples. I ended up, I, when I went to the first trade show, because I never got samples, I was I went to the first trade show, I spent like $500 going to Las Vegas, that's where the jewelry show was, to try to find new vendors, I saw my samples out there in the market already. So wow. those guys made my samples, and because they knew that if I even got an order, I couldn't like, you know, float the money. So they went to the biggest guys and just basically, you know, presented as, as if it was their own. So at that point, I had to learn how to like make copyrights and all that stuff on my own. So I kind of became my own little lawyer at that time. Uh, so at least when I sent things, I would say this was copyrighted, all that stuff. And I think the copyrights at that time was like 10 bucks a design or something. It wasn't It wasn't too bad. So the next batch of samples I got, um, I, you know, again, that was probably majority of my my. Uh, expense doing this. Um, I went to a smaller market because I knew I, I was getting a little edgy about whether the vendors are going to actually ship the stuff. And when they shipped it, it was it be high quality or not. So I went to the Dallas Merchandise Mart instead of like going to New York, which is where all my bigger customers were. And I, you know, called on all the little wholesalers to see like if they'd want it. And because also nobody comes to see like little wholesalers, mom and pop wholesalers. So they were very happy to see me and, uh, and they all had meaningful clients. I mean, they had, you know, 200, 300 people that they bought from them consistently, like little mom and pop stores. So I think my first order was like $500, $800, you know, so my very, very first order was 500, but I got a couple of other ones um, on that trip. And sure enough, the Bengals and tennis bracelets that I got, they did have some problems with hinges um, and closures. You know, they weren't tight and either that or they were too loose. So I sort of fixed that and I figured out which vendors were shipping me what. Um, so once I got that going, I then 
took a trip to New York and, um, you know, I visited Saks, Macy's, all those um, people. And I think my first order after I got that whole thing fixed, because the demand was so great for, you know, there was millions of women working and there wasn't jewelry like this. I think my first test order from Saks was like 56,000 bucks on two bracelets, which was Wow. It caused a whole other problem too, because I had to go get financing right there and then. But right. it was a good thing. Wow. That's great. So, you know, a couple of things that uh, that I heard from in there. First of all, um, start small, right? Yeah. Because it, you're going to be a lot more accessible. One of the big things that we have when we're dealing with clients is, you know, the first things first is, okay, how do we get into Walmart? Well, there's a lot of steps leading up to getting into the biggest retailer on earth. And it's amazing what you mentioned there, that when you went to these places, you talked to these small retailers who generally weren't approached by many right. people. They all of a sudden were very excited to see you. And yet, although they were small, they still represented a couple hundred stores yeah, or whatever yeah. else. So small, maybe to the, the overall market, but very large is an opportunity to you. And the second thing that really stands out to me is ensuring that you've got a great quality product. And that's when things really start to take off. If, if you start, you know, if you have issues, you really need to start small, work those kinks out. And those two things kind of go together, both starting small and working the kinks out so that you can, when you're ready, start approaching, you know, getting into the big leagues and then scaling from there. Right. So just out of curiosity, though, before we go too much far, uh, uh, further, what was the, um, what, what was what went through your mind and what, what was the decision-making that, um, had you basically not take a job and and risk it at all to do this uh, business? Because you, you didn't go too much into that, but I'm curious, you had the opportunity to get great jobs. You, you got the degree, um, all this sort of stuff. And um, I, I just resonate a lot myself because I, I did this business, Maco Design, uh, right, out of, right out of university, also turning down the jobs. So I'm curious if you can kind of highlight you know, what was it that convinced you to, to take the big leap of faith and to go after what you were passionate about? Wow, what a great question. So I actually, um, you know, I, I was always a creative person and I wanted to study uh, like fine art or literature. I'm an avid reader and I love to paint. And my father said, have you ever heard of Stevie Wonder? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said to me, um, how about Leonardo da Vinci? I said, yes, because, well, they didn't go to fine art school and they didn't go to music school. So art is something that comes from within you. And if you go to a major university to learn how to do this, they're just going to ruin you, whatever you have. So he told me, go get a real job. So I actually um, got my degrees in finance because once I got to USC for my MBA school, uh, my professor told me I, I was just never going to be good at marketing because I he said I didn't really understand the nuances of marketing and so forth. So, you know, I, I'm just like an innocent kid. I mean, the professor telling you you're not going to be very good at it. So I did switch my major, but I, I, I had taken way too many courses in marketing to kind of just let go of the whole thing. So I ended up with two degrees, which was great for getting a job. So I did end up with the job, um, two different jobs. And I was just suffocating because here I'm creating... I, you know, I felt like I'm, I, I have a pulse on the customer, but everything that I was doing was being sort of like uh, turned down or cut down in some way by some guy with the, who's got a budget going. And he's usually an accountant who really didn't have a pulse on the market, who didn't understand how to innovate or find a niche. I mean, they just wanted to get the biggest thing. And so it was always watered down thing. Because when you try to be everything to everybody, 
you know, everything because there was no specialty there, right? right. So um, I was working probably 12 hours a day in my job. And I had a two hour commute each way because, you know, from LA, like it's just crazy. So I just said, I just can't handle uh, this. I, I could not see myself like having any kind of family life with that life. And I was miserable. So I actually had a whole mic drop moment in the middle of traffic. Like I just said, okay, I can't do this anymore. So, you know, I basically gave my boss notice the following Monday. It was Friday afternoon. I did end up staying for a couple of months to finish up all my projects for him, but that's how I started my company. Now, it's still very risky, Kevin, when you have no money. And um, I started my company in 89, 90. That was, a, that was what led to the, the real estate meltdown in 91 through 94. That was the big meltdown. So the recession was just hitting there. And I, I was aware that if things didn't work out for me, that could be a multiple year unemployment for me. But I had to... I had to live. I had to breathe. And I just couldn't even just imagine myself. And the other thing, too, is I'm just glad you asked me this. I believe there are basically two, two ways you make money. One way is to you, you do something that everybody does every day that's been doing it for a thousand years, but you gotta you find a way to do it better and cheaper. Or you invent something new. Oh, I wasn't smart enough to invent anything new. So I went with the other way. So, you know, no matter what, recessions, financial disasters. I mean, today in the middle of COVID, people are still getting married. They're still celebrating anniversaries. There are birthdays. People are getting promoted, graduated. You know, there's all these things. There's nothing more classic than jewelry. Why not find a way to innovate and elevate and get paid for it? And you so, ended up doing both. You did. You ended up doing both innovation and elevation of you know the, the the quality or the costs or the underlying metrics. You ended up kind of going on and doing both of those elements hand in hand, which really almost doubles down on the opportunity for you at that point. Well, true. And if any of you who are listening, uh, listening to me and Kevin here, I have uh, three steps there. You innovate. You elevate, innovate, and dominate. And if you go through the whole circle, um, that's how I went from zero to $500 million. And, and I did this with no loans, no mentors, no advertising. So it can be wow. done. I'm not an extraordinary person by any means. I'm, I'm just a little girl here. Uh, you can all do this. It's no joke. You really can. Can you break down those three, um, three elements? Elevate, Ele innovate, dominate. Right? Dominate. Mm -hmm. And I can go through you know, each yeah, go separately. through. Let's go through each one and break those down a bit because that, that's great. It's a great framework. So when you elevate, so jewelry, like I said, uh, in the macro uh, field out there, when I was starting my career, there was all this jewelry, and jewelry was sold mostly. Um, you know, this is how many carats. I know I'm sure you bought jewelry for your wife. You know, this is a two carat diamond. It's a it's an H whatever uh, clarity, and it's X amount because it's easy to sell it this way to a guy. Okay, jewelry industry has kind of perfected this whole hypothetical uh, quality measurement thing, the forces of diamond or whatever. But what about those people who don't want a diamond? What about people who want a, you know, a rare gem? They never really, you know, when you elevate, you elevate the quality. So for me, the hinges and all this stuff has to be perfectly. And also when I made my bangles, I made sure that the bangles were oval. They, they used to be like circles. Well, human wrist is not oval. I mean, human wrist is not a circle, it's an oval. 
So I basically, you know, figured out the fit that uh, women want. Mostly, most of the jewelers uh, at that time were male. It was a male-dominated jewelry business. So I tested all this. So I tested the fit. You know, heavyweight earrings. I mean, they tear your earrings apart. There are millions of women out there right now getting their ear surgery because you know they got giant holes that are stretching because they just never thought about that. So lightweight, something that's comfortable, high quality pieces that's going to last you a lifetime. Whether they're spending fifty bucks or five hundred dollars or fifty thousand, jewelry is bought for sentimental reasons. So you want it to last. And when I say that you want it to last, quality has to last, but also style has to last. So in my designs, I put something timeless in every design so that it could go from generation to generation seamlessly. Uh, such as like if you put floral elements or butterflies or things out of nature, you know, butterflies have been here probably longer than a few billion years longer than us. They're going to be here. So when you put those classic elements in, it doesn't have to be screaming out, but it could be something that's there that makes it very um, timeless, sentimental. And then your messaging could be, look, you know, if you're like in my bridal business, marketing messages, it never says, Oh, there's a you know two carat diamond for X amount. We say things like, your love story is unique. Why not design a ring to tell your story? Um, wouldn't you rather buy from somebody like that than you know? So all of our messaging was really elevating their life experiences as a result of being connected to our jewelry line. So that's elevating. You know what's Innovate- interesting? Just before Bye. we go to innovation, Bye. interesting about your elevation thing. Yeah. Um, all of these um elevations that you mentioned here, innovations, they're small incremental improvements. You weren't coming up with like an entirely new piece of jewelry that nobody had seen before. You were looking at an existing piece. And you know what? Nowadays, whether it's a a hardware invention or a piece of jewelry or or even a service or software company, it, it really, some people get caught up when they think, okay, well, I haven't created the next light bulb. You don't need to create the next teleportation machine or whatever else to make a $500 million business, you can just look at a market and say, look, I can improve this just a little bit. And when you do that, that yeah. probably leads to what you're about to say next. That's when you can really look at, at, at uh, scaling and creating an empire. Uh, it doesn't require, and I think that's really what's important. It doesn't require a major change, minor incremental improvements done well at a high quality, start small, start with quality, start with m- improvements, and then yeah. you know grow from there. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I think even more basic than that is think about how your customer absorbs your information, absorbs what you have to, how they experience things. You know, for example, I mean, we talked about this earlier that you take coffee, basic, something as basic as coffee. People have been drinking coffee for I don't know how many years. Um, And here comes Starbucks. They take, I mean, how many of us, I mean, I go through McDonald's every, I mean, pass by 10 McDonald's before I get to the Starbucks so I can pay $5 for my cup of coffee instead of the dollar, right? That's exactly, you know, it's very, pretty much what I did with my jewelry business in that, you know, it doesn't, t- it just doesn't take like a brain surgery to figure out what your consumer, what your end user would prefer, what they would pay a premium for. Right. So, 
you know, before that costume jewelry or silver jewelry was sold for 10, 20 bucks. My average price point back then was $125 in silver, which is 500% higher than, than the going average out there. But they bought it gladly because it met a need at a different level. Right. So small improvement and then messaging directly to what they yeah, want. Yeah. Right. What's the end goal to that person? So let me just, you know, I know we're not going to talk a lot about my TV appearances, but let me tell you how when I'm on TV, I kind of sort of in my messaging on TV sort of is the embodiment of the whole brand. So, for example, even today, jewelers who are not successful, they will come on TV and they'll say something like, you know, I, I'm just going to do what other people do and what I do. And this has to do with what they're thinking inside. And because that's how, how you talk, you know, what you, what you have in your mind, they'll come on and say, you know what? I love summer, you know, summer is so fun. And, you know, I just love, you know, when, when my husband and I go on our boat around the lake and, you know, and I, my kids are on, I just love everything about it. And I designed this wonderful piece of jewelry. And you know what I love the most about it? It sparkles and does this and does that. And guess what? It's today. It's like, you know, I don't know. 150 bucks. So and that's good. You know, that's okay. Cause you know, a lot of people want to sort of establish their ex expert, expert authority by talking about how great they are. They've got a boat, all that. I'll come on and say something like, you know what? Aren't you all glad that summer is finally here? We can go out and enjoy life like the way you used to. I can't wait for you to experience this uh, collection when you can go out with your family out, uh, you know, whether you're out there enjoying your life at you know, barbecue or at your mother's birthday, you're going to be glowing and you're going to be radiant because you know you made a smart purchase and you know when you get those compliments, you know that they know that you didn't, you didn't waste money because you buy nice things. And today you could have it for 20 bucks on a down payment. And, you know, how nice is it that after you enjoy this forever, that you can pass it on to your daughter. Because I've been on TV for 25 years. What that means is you can't be on anything for 25 years if you're not good and if you tell lies, right? So the fact that people are still calling me with, you know, they're getting compliments 25 years later, how many things do you have in your closet that is still relevant, right? So that purchase is something that is worthy of passing on to your next generation. So, you know, I use the word you probably five times or every time I use the word I. And I think that That's when great. you develop products so that you're thinking about their enjoyment, what they're going to do now in their backyard barbecue to what, what that means when they have their birthdays and she's glowing to 50 years from now, it makes a very different messaging. So this is how you're elevating the same thing simply with messaging, but then you have to back it up with things that's going to last 20 years in quality as well as styling. So that's, so you've got the elevate part, then that comes to the innovation part and then right. the dominate, right? So now right. we're talking um, the innovation section. And you're going to, the innovation is, is even more basic. So when I got into uh, the jewelry business and I would go to the manufacturers and they would always send me necklaces. They're like, okay, well, uh, what inch, what, what length do you want for your necklace? And they'd offer me seven, uh, 18, 20, 24, 30 inches. These are standard lengths the jewelry industry uses. 
So I said, well, I don't really know anybody who looks really great with like a pendant that's 18 inches. I mean, most of our necks are like 13 inches. I mean, guys' necks are, you know, when you buy shirts, you know, it's like 15, 16 inches. Why are we walking around with 18 inches when you're like 20 years old? So, I mean, it drops down way low. And I said, well, what about a 16 inch necklace for like a choker? And, and they're like, no, 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 we don't do that. I said, well, why not? Well, they would tell me, well, this is the way it's always been done. Every jewelry company stocks those lengths. And I said, well, have you ever thought of, have you ever seen anybody with that on? Because the best length actually is 15 and a half. So I had a really tough time getting people to kind of buy into that. Um, But when I did it, when I did the 15 and a half inches, that just doing that was 25% of my business. Wow. I mean, by by that alone. Another small incremental improvement. Small thing, because it was out there bracelets, which was my number one category at the time, they were all ordered in seven and a half. All the jewelers, if you go to a store right now and you want to check out a ring, they're usually going to be size seven. So if you wear anything other than that, you have to get a special ordered. You have to get it, you know, size down. Nobody stocks these things. So I'm like, if you look around, I said, you know, my Asian side of the family, they were size six bracelets five and a half, six bracelets. And my Caucasian side of the family, they were seven and a half to eight inches. So nobody wears a seven inches. I mean, nobody in my family, nobody, I don't know anyone who can wear a seven inches. I mean, I'm sure there are people who can, but hundred percent of the stock is eight and seven inches. What, what's wrong with that? So I offered the bracelets in like six, six and a half, seven, seven and a half. I ordered a bunch of different, and, but you have, to, if you're going to do that, you really have to understand you have to track your sales, right? But doing those four or five different lengths caused, like, was another 25% increase um, in, in volume. So those were, those were innovations, but not innovations. Um, then what happened was I thought, you know what? After a little while, I thought, okay, these guys really just, just really hate making these stupid, like, you have to understand, like, chains come in a, like on a spool. So they just have to chop it and put them on, but they just, they hated the idea of having extra stock because gold is kind of expensive. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. What about if we make it in 16 inches, but have like a two, three inch tail, like just the holes on it. So you could actually, somebody could wear it at 16, 17, 18, no, because you just have an extender built into the necklace. So that way a person who actually, you know, she has a choice, right? And you only have to stock one one length chain now because you got the three. And if you really have to, you can sell the extender separately. So that actually today, that's almost standard now on TV. But at the time I did it, they were like, oh, what a brilliant idea. Um, it was just thinking, you know, about how I would want to wear it. Um, and then I did make some really big innovations, such as I don't have that with me, but I have a thing called a bridge ring where you actually build two rings. I mean, it looks like there's a bridge on the bottom of it and the and the top layer is all elevated. With, and that one did require engineering uh, because when you put like one ring on top of one another, you can't size them ever. So, and I sold it that way. I sold it like, look, when you when you see somebody with the bridge ring, so there it's two rings on top of one another but so that it's it's really designed so that the light really comes through the, the top stone and it's only done at very high-end um pieces and secondly it's done mostly in custom designs for one size only because you can't ever be sized so when somebody sees you with it they know you spent money they know it's expensive they know it's custom so it becomes this real uh, how would i say it uh, conversation piece and it just looks stunning anyway 
So, and I, I did have to stock size all the different sizes myself. I had to actually, you know, master them, but you know, in the first bridge rings, I actually maybe broke even or made a little bit of money. Cause I didn't know like how many size fives and you know, whatever I needed. But what happened was anybody who bought that, they always wanted to buy matching earrings or pendants or other things with that. And they also, if they wanted anything special for any of their life's milestone moments, they always came to me. So, right. you know, those innovations actually uh, got your market share, really. And, you know, TV stations, I mean, they, I, I know I had, I had all the jewelers watching my shows because it's like, what is you going to come up with next? So again, That's these great. are not like... I'm not a scientist. I, I don't, you know, it would just be almost a little stretch to consider that innovation. But it sort of was innovation that was not innovation. Not well, and then on top of that, on top of that, you've stacked innovation, these small incremental innovations on top of each other. So you've got multiple different small innovations across right. your line now, which really started uh, creating scale, which I'm right. guessing then leads into that. That domination. third element, yeah. domination, right? Yeah. So talk a bit about domination. Like how do how do you, you you've got to the industry, you've started creating your niche, you've started creating your part of that that world. How do our listeners then uh, leverage that to start dominating their industry and making sure they've got a big moat around their business? So uh, so what happens after that is when you are the person known to consistently innovate and elevate and getting premium pricing for the same thing that everybody else is, and you you have a brand, um, I always got the first call. So when somebody discovers that, you know, I remember there was a, a stone, it's a lot of your people who are listeners, if you're their guys, they may not know this, but people call it mint uh, quartz or green amethyst. There's all these names for them, but it, the technical term for that is praiseolite. When they came up with this sort of like a greenish, they were looking for amethyst, but they found this greenish material, greenish quartz. I always got the first call. And when I got the first call, I'll just tell them, you know, how many carrots do you have? I think he had, he had like 100,000 carrots. I'll say, well, I'll take it all because I knew I could sell it. I'll take it all. And so there were certain things that just never made it to the market for like three years. And, uh, you know, when you're on TV and you're selling uh, something, you know, something like, you know, 10, 20, 100,000 units. Um, a month when you when you got the show, you have a market for this. And, you know, so by that point, my jewelry was sold at all the major department stores: Harrods um, London, Galleries Lafayette, uh, Takashimaya Japan. I was on the Japanese TV network. I was on HSN here, and um, I had duty free all the cruise ships. I mean, I did like Princess Cruises, Royal Caribbean, Celebrity, Holland America. I was on all of them, uh, all the different airlines. So. I mean, every one of those stones is like five carats. So it, it came out to about 20,000 units. I, I was going to, it was going to go out like in four days uh, in, in my world. So you start to dominate. If you have, if you're a miner, if you're, if you're, you know, a little guy mining in Tanzania or wherever it is, wouldn't you want to make that one phone call and get it done rather than, you know, go to 20 trade shows. So I always got my pick of the litter. And then when you have things that no one else has, I was then able to go to a cutter, like a gemstone cutter and say, you know what? I don't understand why the whole industry has these ratios, like eight by six, 10 by eight, 14 by 12. Like what the heck is that? Because when you do the same thing that everybody's got the same thing, they all kind of look the same. You're all drawing the same circles and ovals. 
I want a different cut. I want a different. Well, they told me, well, if you change it, if you go from 1410 to like 147, we have to hire a whole engineering team to figure out how to refacet the 58 facets so that they're all gonna they're gonna get the maximum. And we'll, we'll go get it done. Like, you know, get it done. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, hello. So whenever somebody says, well, no, it can't be done, I'm like, that's music to my ears. So I get why can't it be done now? And I always find a way to get it done. So my designer designs then became much more exclusive because I had, you know, stones that were exclusive. And then I had cuts that no one else could, you know, kind of, because at that point, small companies could not compete with me. You can't be a little mom and pop and go, you know what? I want a whole 30 people, fashion engineers to come up with a new cut. Well, I was able to do that. So that's when you start to dominate. So getting from starting a tiny little business to elevation is like a zero problem. You just have to look at the problems. You have to look at as a consumer, what would I prefer, right? And then you go from there to innovation. If you're so good at, but if, if you are so passionate, I mean, you could, your passion could be gardening. I got pet peeves about gardening. Like I don't garden a lot, but I love, uh, I love nature. I spend, you know, I live in California. So we spend about 80% of our time outdoors. And whenever I do pick up something, that stupid gardening material is too heavy or they break on you. Well, somebody should invent something because you know, I'm willing to pay a lot of money for you know, a good piece of equipment that you know just gives you a lot of pleasure. Um, same thing with you know anything that you know people are doing every single day. It could be coffee, croissant, jewelry, whatever. There is room for improvement, I assure you. Absolutely. And there is money to be made. Lots of things still to be developed, lots of room. And mm -hmm. there's new technologies, which add new avenues yeah. for all that. And absolutely, you know, a common thread that I've heard through your, your processes from the starting phases through to your kind of innovation phases and then into the growth phases really is having those small incremental changes. You even right. mentioned at the end when you're you know, a multi-hundred million dollar business, you're still working with factories to improve or yeah. change or do something different that makes you unique. That's the right. great thing about inventors and innovators. A lot of the listeners on the show is most of them already have those ideas. They have those small innovations. So I think your story is incredible to show that you don't need a major innovation. It could be a minor innovation and then continue to innovate to scale and then continue to innovate again to dominate and conquer. And it all starts from just that first kind of aha moment that, yeah. that, and you mentioned it with your early jewelry lines, a couple of things that you saw that weren't happening in the market and you went after those and that allowed you tremendous room to scale. The other thing that I find interesting about this too is uh, you mentioned something about as you kind of, as you were innovating, it opened up other doors to essentially innovate further as it re-engineering the right. tooling line that you were talking about, right? So if you innovate, it gives you power because now you have the power to, to, to have a little more leverage with distributors or wholesalers or whatever else. Also, let's say if you're uh, in the startup mode and you're um, you know, you don't have the strength of other manufacturers because you're new and whatever else, well, maybe this innovation gives you that power to compete at a level edge with them or even above them. But it really all comes down to innovation throughout the phases. And the greatest thing about what you said today, and I've seen it in many of our products, you look at our client, uh, the tri-plunger, right? It's a triangle-shaped toilet plunger. That was his idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now at any store he goes to, he generally is conquering the toilet plunger 
section because right. most toilets now have a triangle shape as opposed to a circular shape. So obviously by a triangle, a small incremental improvement to an existing product, and you can have a multi-million dollar product line. So yeah, right. I really appreciate all that. Um, as we're wrapping up here, what are some, uh, you know, just final lessons, nuggets for um, startups, hardware folks, people getting new innovations uh, out of the door? What are some final nuggets, final pieces of advice uh, for them as they grow in the early stages of, of their business to, uh, to both innovate and scale their new products? You know, I think that um, a lot of people say, you know, you learn from your failures and you and they lead to successes later on if you choose to learn from that. And those are, you know, and I agree with that. But I mean, in my case, you I would go even further and say that you need to plan failures. And I'm going to I'm going to go and explain that because we're going to get to do this uh, a little bit. Uh, you need to plan your failures. You need to have make sure that you do fail in something, because if you never fail, that means you've never really tested the boundaries of anything. So like if, when I go on TV, when I de design products, for example, I would have I know things that, I, that I, I know that I can count on by a certain point. You know, if you're an entrepreneur right now already, you know, things that are bringing you some money, you know, the, the five things that bring you 80 percent of your business. But you know what? That's not going to last you forever. You're going to need to find the next thing. So how do you find the next thing? Well, you have to try. You have to reach out to the ones that, you know, here is the next sort of a natural extension of what I'm doing now. But I think I can reach this far. So, you know, go reach out to them and plan on that thing failure, failing, because you might go, you know what? If I'm selling something for a plunger for, you know, I don't know, 20 bucks, and you say, well, I got a super speed, whatever, it looks good and all that. And I'm going to, I think the natural extension is something that looks good, that's smaller, that's mobile, whatever, self-cleaning for 40 bucks. Well, come up with that too. But you might go, you know what, for somebody who really, really is into this, you know, who's got eight bedrooms or something, maybe I'll come up with a hundred dollar version of it. You know, you'll actually learn something and you will understand why they don't buy something. And you'll go, you know what, if I'm going to get the hundred bucks, I probably should have added this feature or that feature into this. So plan on failures because they're a good thing. Don't think like if some if you try something that doesn't work. And you know, going back to the light bulb thing. I mean, Thomas Edison, I think, failed like a thousand times, or, but the thousand the thousand and one time was a light bulb. I mean, I don't think you should go that far. But <laughs> if you have um, a business right now. Don't always go for the one that's going to suck out the most money. Think about, again, the customer experience and see, because some people are going to pay, you know, I mean, in my private business, the, the one of a kind, so I have the, the TV business and then I have the regular store business and then I have the, the one of a kind. I mean, those people pay $50,000, $100,000 for something, essentially the same designer. But I think that it's, um, so the final word is believe in yourself and failure is a normal thing. Um, and that if you're very good at it, you plan it so that you get, you know, you, you can sort of expect the rewards out of that. Um, and then lastly, you don't have to invent anything to make a fortune. Whatever your hobby is right now, whatever you're passionate about, start thinking about monetizing that because the chances are you could probably make a pretty good living out of it. That's amazing. Victoria, very powerful advice. Much appreciated for you to be, be on, on the show. Uh, 
where do you want people to go to learn about, you know, buying your jewelry or, or um, reaching out to something oh, yeah. you're interested in? Like what, what's, uh, what's going on? Uh, what do you want to tell everybody about right now? Uh, give us a, you know, websites, whatever else uh, that uh, we can check it out. Yeah. So uh, come to the million dollar hobbies podcast. I actually started a whole podcast uh, talking about, uh, and I have guests that have taken their hobby to a multi-million dollar business. In fact, all of my guests have done over a million dollars with their hobby. So come to million dollar hobbies um, podcast. And then there's also million dollar hobbies.com. And you can, uh, and you can also come to victoriawick.com and all about my other things as well, the jewelry and all that. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, I didn't come on here to sell anything. My website is uh, pretty much right now, not an e-commerce site. It's just a pure engagement site. Cause I feel like people are just being told to buy this, buy that, all that. So I want people to just come and chill out, learn. And um, I'm just having a, a lot of fun with that. So. Well, really appreciate it for your efforts on all that stuff. Uh, million you. dollar podcast. Um, million dollar hobbies. Oh, Million Dollar yeah. Hobbies podcast. Right. Right on. Excited to check it out. Uh, Victoria, thanks again for being on the show. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com that's m-a-k-o design.com for a free consultation from one of maco designs for design studios from coast to coast thanks for listening and see you next time